Aristotle once said, in every act of doing, we are becoming. Every day, all of us make choices that shape and form us into the people that we are and the people that we are becoming. I'm your producer, Michael Moffat, and I want to welcome you to the Arete Way, a podcast dedicated to helping you become excellent in all that you do. Kevin Roden, good morning. Walter Nussbaum, good to be here. Listen, I got to tell you, man, I was so excited to get you on the show because I have always, one, loved our conversations. You're one of those guys that is never lacking of thought or opinion, and you're so well-educated and thoughtful that I just thought, man, I got to get you on the show. So the fact that you said yes is a huge honor to us. I have nowhere to go but down now in this conversation. (laughs) You taught me how to read, Walter. I remember being in a book discussion group with you when I was in college. Remember that back in the day? Yes. Read a series of books. That was really foundational to my uh, way of thinking. So I, I appreciate, appreciate that. that. The, the, those were good years. I did that yeah. for a couple of years. I had about what, 10, 11 guys yeah. and we read a book a month for a year. Yep. So read some Mortimer Adler together. Theology, politics, philosophy, science. And, yeah. All sorts of Amazing things. how many guys went on to do PhDs from that, pro, from, yeah, from that right. group too. Several of them. But uh, anyway, great to have you on here. Uh, just by way, just brief background. Now, you know, a lot of people who may not know, you've been on the city council in Denton for, what was it, six years? Six years, yeah. yeah. And positive experience for you? Was, this, was it what you expected? Who has a positive experience as they're getting yelled at for zoning changes? Uh, <laughs> but no, by and large, it's a, it was a joy and honor to serve the city for six years. You term out after six years, yeah. which is healthy for the city and for the people doing yeah. it. You know, it's a non-paid position, voluntary uh, to get uh, punched every day <laughs> while you're up there. But I uh, know it was a great experience. Well, you're obviously having to deal with so many a diversity of opinions and ideas, and you've got to somehow take what you believe and listen to what other people desire and navigate those waters. And that's got to be a huge challenge at the local level. It's the virtue, I think, of local democracy, right? I mean, somebody can grab a hold of me when I'm in the pickup line to pick up kids at school or when I'm in the grocery store. If you think about the abstraction of politics at a national or even state level, you're never going to have a chance to sit down and have a meaningful conversation with your representative, unless you're a wealthy donor, perhaps. Uh, But here is really where I think democracy, the rubber meets the road. So part and parcel to even my interest in getting into it was with some larger sense of democracy tends to be broken, it seems, on several levels in our country. And Perhaps at a local level, you find an opportunity for people to get engaged in a real meaningful way. So to me, that's the fun part of it, taking folks who otherwise are reared in their political thinking on a national level to think things through in these extreme notions, who want to bring that sort of types of conversation and argument style to a local level, but realizing that's my neighbor. I got to take the trash out next to that guy. And we have to coexist in a really real tangible way. So to me, there's a lot of benefits to thinking about local democracy in, in the sense of really giving people a positive outlet, outlet to be good citizens. Yeah. No, that's great. I love that. So beautiful. This is why I have you on the show. You just, you know, you, I think you speak with such clarity um, that it just makes me want to engage kind of even at the local level, which a lot of people, you know, they really get into the national politics, the stuff they don't really have much influence in, but it's that local level that things can really happen. You know, part of your development I know also is, um, you know, academically, you did your master's in philosophy, University of Dallas. We took a class together. That was a wonderful drive to Dallas. Right. Yeah. Got some great stories from some class time discussion there. Picking you up at Chili's, taking you there. (laughs) That's right. 
So, you know, with kind of a philosophical background, your background in local politics, and not just that, but early on when you were younger, I mean, you were kind of an activist in some areas that you really love to kind of get out there and just let your voice be heard. And, you know, I've always respected that about you. Not to mention the fact, um, and don't let your head get too big, but look, you've got a great family. You know, you've got a great marriage. Your wife is incredible. I mean, she's a success in her own right Mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur. You've got these amazing kids. And so when I look at your life, I've always admired the way you've lived your life. And obviously not perfect, but you've lived a good life. And 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 I've got to believe there's just a set of principles that has driven you to be able to do life the way that you do. You even run, you even take care of your body. (laughs) So I wanna kind of talk about, you know, from Kevin Roden's perspective, I wanna talk about this idea, you know, the Arete way is all about excellence. Mm -hmm. And I wanna talk about the good society. Yeah, I mean, this is something right now that it seems like there's more of disruption in our day than maybe in our lifetime we've seen. so I want to talk a little bit about that. As you think about the good society, what, what does that even mean to you? Yeah, it's a great question and several aspects to that. I mean, I think at the fundamental level, there's the idea of peacefully coexisting with one another. And we tend to forget about how unique that is historically. If you think about the birth of democracy as it came about in Europe uh, and spread throughout the world, it was a result of seeing uh, religious wars for centuries and people fighting with one another over ideologies and religion and beliefs. Not unimportant things, but certainly unable to succeed and flourish as a society when you're fighting one another. So democracy was really birthed out of this. How do we get a focus that brings us together under ideals that we all share in common? So certainly that sense of safety uh, is essential to a society uh, in getting along with others. Which would include this peaceful transition of power that we have a lot of pride in, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, but I think the other aspect is I've always, and I think about the city this way, and certainly any um, governmental uh, body, whether it's a state or a, a nation, a, as a platform uh, for opportunity, a platform for people to, uh, to do what they wanna do. I mean, we call it in the Declaration of Independence, pursuit of happiness. Uh, but this opportunity for folks to be able to uh, flourish and whatever that means for them, uh, economically, uh, seeking the good life uh, and whatnot. So to the extent that a society is just and functioning well, is you've created opportunities for people uh, to get ahead in life. Yeah. So I like that word, this idea of flourishing. It, it seems like the good society is a society that affords everyone the opportunity to flourish. And, and so when we talk about that, are, are we talking about everybody getting the same outcomes? Or are we talking about simply creating a society where the system is set up such that everybody has the same opportunity? Yeah, no, I think everyone has the same opportunity. Uh, if you think about any other platform upon which activity happens, think about an iPhone, for instance. It's like you've got several developers that have the opportunity to get in there and create an application that others might be interested in. Maybe it's going to be useful, maybe it's going to be not. Mm. But they all have the same opportunity to get onto that platform to see uh, whether or not that hits. That's the beauty uh, of America. Uh, and it, some people are going to be better at that at times than others. Uh, and But everyone has the opportunity. And there are certain things that come along with that too. And I think as a culture, we have valued, for instance, education. I think it's the reason we've committed to a public education because we've decided to be a good citizen, to be a good contributing member to your economy and life and that have the good life. You have to be educated. 
So there's certain things that go into feeding that opportunity that we all need to value. Uh, but yeah, certainly it's about that opportunity. I mean, going back to the iPhone illustration, I think it's a really good one because let's say that you have no real competition and you're the one that's coming up with all the new platforms. It's in your best interest to have good competition. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you want them to flourish as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because then it makes you be the best that you can be if you want to continue to to uh, create the, the best designs that you can. Yeah, and competition signals that there's something of interest to what you're doing. So you take when Uber came on the field and then you had Lyft and you had all these other things. Well, it signals that that's catching on and people realize there's real value to be had there. So, uh, yeah, competition makes you much better. Yeah, and that's really one of the things that kind of the American experiment, I guess if you can call it that, was really rooted in this idea. It's kind of Lockean, which you and I have studied a little bit years ago. Um, but this idea of kind of the rugged individualism, that there's something about human beings that are meant to be individuals. And, uh, that's, and that's a beautiful thing. There's something powerful about that. What is it that allowed, in your, in your opinion, what is it that allowed the individualism of the American mindset for so long to work, whereas today it seems like maybe it's not working like it used to. Yeah. I think we had a shared value around the value of that individualism mm. as one thing. And so we kind of valued that concept, uh, that pioneering spirit. I mean, that's at the heart of, of America. Uh, and it's still today, when you look at entrepreneurship, you look at other sorts of pioneering efforts in our country. Uh, but it also, I think our country had a very healthy, virtuous underpinning to it. For the most part, there were certainly stains. We're talking about that today with our past of slavery and whatnot. But in terms of the religious background of the majority of the people, the terms of people having a shared sense of what is right uh, and what is wrong, there wasn't a lot of confusion uh, in terms of should I murder my neighbor or not. And so those sorts of things that didn't need to be codified mm. in our founding documents because there was an assumption uh, that the goodness of the people was being developed through these non-governmental ways uh, allowed for uh, that flourishing to take place because Government didn't have to worry about that. The churches were taking care of that. The families were taking care of that. And so uh, that's the assumption that I think America had towards its founding that uh, certainly is different <laughs> in terms of what that looks like today. And then yeah. we have to ask as a society, what, is, what are the grounding principles that allow for that same sense of goodness of a people to continue even uh, when we're in a more secular non-religious environment? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the question. Uh, obviously, many years earlier, the good society, people's ability to define the good was probably easier. There was less diversity of opinion in terms of what the good is. Whereas now, as the pendulum seems to be swinging, you know, back and forth farther, the idea of the good is becoming less clear. And so to say that there's a, uh, a common cultural understanding of what the good is today, that's not that clear, is it? No, it's not that clear. And there has been an interesting shift. If you think about when I was in college in the 90s, uh, there was this, I mean, moral relativism coming out of the, or cultural relativism coming out of the anthropology departments, a little bit out of the philosophy departments uh, in a university setting was the rage of the day. Um, and so there was a lot of questioning around every, everything's up in the air. We can't say anything's true can't think, say anything's right. Everything's relative. Even though people didn't act like that, fortunately, people acted as if there were certain absolute uh, ideas. But today, I think in the wake of certain social 
justice interests. It's almost like the folks who decided in the 90s that there was no truth, there mm -hmm. was no morality, all of a sudden have gotten a conscience and now are raging with, we know what absolute right and absolute wrong is, yeah. coming from a different angle, not a religious angle. So it's an interesting cultural transition we're facing. I think today, the idea of moral imperatives, moral absolutes, coming from a different angle, where it's actually stronger, perhaps, than it's ever been. Uh, it's just, we have to understand where that's coming from. Yeah, you know, I was talking to a student, I say a student that looked like they were in their early 20s. Uh, this is about two weeks ago, amidst all that was going on, and. I just asked them as they were walking down the sidewalk over here by the office, I said, hey, um, I just was curious. It looks like you guys are, are really fighting for justice. And uh, he said, absolutely. And I said, I'm just kind of, I'm with you. I'm 100% on board. I'm curious. How, how would you define that? And it was so interesting just to kind of watch this young man try to attempt justice, try to attempt to um, uh, define justice. And he said, you know, just make things fair. You know, well, what's, yeah. well, what's that? Yeah, I, I, that's, that's a great example because I think, you know, I used to say back in the 90s <laughs> when I would give talks or, or engage with college students that we were in, at that time, a bumper sticker culture in terms of how we dialogued. Mm -hmm. Think in our day back when they had the Igthus on cars, right? So you have an Igthus that someone put on a car and then someone would decide to put that evolution Igthus on and it's eating that fish. <laughs> All right. And then somebody else would respond with this larger school of fish that are like, or the shark that's eating. I mean, it just, but that described the way in which we would converse with one another, right? Yeah. We all had our bumper sticker slogans, uh -huh. but as you dug down like you did with that gentleman below to more foundational questions of what do you mean by that slogan? He couldn't get very far. Yeah. And today I think with social media, I think it's actually exasperated where we're now not a bumper sticker culture. We're a meme culture. We have our, great memes that we're throwing out in response to one another and people high five one another. Oh, that's great how you took that person down. But they couldn't get two questions beyond that in terms of how they think about that. And I think that's a real problem. Yeah. You said something before we started the podcast today, which I really loved. And that was this idea of having a conversation to try to show how a conversation should happen and helping people to see uh, an example of how to think together. Yeah. You know, you and I, uh, very good friends, known each other a very long time. We don't land on the same positions on a number of issues. Sure, sure. But that has never kept us from just thoroughly enjoying right. this dialogue. Actually and makes it more fun. It makes it more fun because I honestly look forward to what you're about to say about something because yeah. I always learn something. I walk away and uh, I'm always going, God, that was interesting. And uh, I follow up with something that you say. And hopefully it's vice versa at times. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, probably much less with you doing that yeah. than me. But um, I think that's what's missing. And even like with this young man, I could tell a level of frustration brewing fairly quickly with him. The moment you tried to press, I was trying to press him a little bit. Tell me about that. What, what do you mean fair? So how do you how do you know what's fair? Right. And then at that point, very easily, you can begin to see that he doesn't like where his answers are going. Because then when you give some counter examples, well, is this fair? Because that applies to what you just said. Well, no, you know, and then they get frustrated. Yeah. And that's part of the problem is I think people don't, aren't patient enough to really think through what, what they believe. Yeah. And it crosses over several sectors of society. I mean, certainly as you think about the good society and politics and thinking in general, it requires by necessity humility to understand that the world's larger than my brain mm. and there's things I don't know 
Uh, and so if I enter into every conversation with this sense of, I have something to learn here instead of something to just say here, um, that can transform things. Uh, but, you know, at the heart of democracy is this virtue of uh, coming together through compromise. And I worry that our state of not just discourse, but even how we think about things uh, politically, when we're not that deep, when we're just on the slogan level, right. we're not set up to be able to compromise precisely because I'm not spending time to understand your point of view, yeah. to even understand how could I give in order for you to get Let's, let's dig into that for a minute. In just your last couple of decades of just watching and observing and really having conversations with a lot of people and having forums that you've set up, what is, what's led to that, Kevin? What do you feel like has led to the, the inability or the, low, the, the lesser ability to be able to do that? Well, I think, it's, I think there's an education problem. I think there's a, uh, my wife recently read a book that I think is insightful in its uh, uh, diagnosing of the problem less so in its prescription but it's called the knowledge gap in which um, it describes we've set up an educational system in which we're very skill-based and that works well when you've got these sets of standardized testing but in terms of really giving people great breadth of knowledge into the great works that our society has been built upon the great literature and whatnot we're lacking in that so as a result we're not great thinkers yeah. <laughs> as a culture so when you're not great thinkers you're really susceptible to tribalism. You're susceptible to who's on my team and who's cheering. It's like a sport, sporting event that doesn't involve a lot of thinking. It's just a lot of cheerleading. Yeah. And so I think that goes along with it. Uh, and so always the big problem in politics throughout history has been how do we curb the passions of people that can be exasperated to the point of wanting to spill blood uh, for a cause? Uh, and that's something we really need to figure out how to get under control. The United States used to be led by reason. Yeah. That's the founding of us. So to the extent that we're not great thinkers any longer, yeah. it is the extent that passion takes over. And I saw it a lot sitting in city council chambers as I would see these young people very passionate about a topic, maybe even rightfully so from my perspective, coming to the table and saying things like, we're here representing the people. Now there's 30 of them in a city of 130,000, right? So there's a perspective thing. Yeah. We're representing the people and either you do this or democracy is done and we're not participating any longer. I always thought to myself that those aren't young democratic citizens. They're participating in a democratic process, but doing so from a tyrannical spirit. Mm. It's my way or the highway. right? And that's the perspective that I think cuts across both sides of the aisle now. Yeah, Let's put our foot down and so, I think it's rooted in, I do think it's rooted to some degree in just a lack of uh, learning how to think. I think, uh, and then you take the easy road of just indoctrination. You yeah. just take one viewpoint and that's all you see. I was having a conversation not long ago with a guy that just got back from one of the provinces in Canada. And I said, hey, how was your trip? And he said, man, it was great. He said, this province, one of the greatest places I've ever been. I said, really, tell me about it. And he said, do you know what's great about them? I said, what's that? He said, they're just, they're so open-minded. And I said, really? I said, that's interesting. I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, what do you think it means? And I said, well, I think open-minded probably means that a person's willing to really listen to both sides, to read both sides, to understand both sides, and to really consider both sides. And then they can make an opinion and a decision, and they can defend both sides just as e easily, even though they believe in one, you know, that this position has more merit to it. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I said, so... And he was really on the left 
in terms of his political persuasions. I said, I'm curious, what conservative books have you read in terms of politics or you know cultural values? And he, he, uh, he admittedly said, I haven't read any. And I said, well, how could you say you're open-minded then if you've never even taken the time to really read both sides? And it, and it goes both ways, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. I just got through reading a book that I know is a very popular book right now. A lot of people are reading, uh, White Fragility, right? And so as I read this book, I really read it with the spirit of, I really want to understand the argument that she's making in this book. I don't know if you've read this book or not, not, but it's, you know, it's definitely, you know, right. being read widely right now. And I thought, I want to read this book. I really want to make sure I understand what is the argument here. And I felt like for me to have an opinion about something without taking the time to read a leading uh, scholarly thinker or opinion on it would, would not, would just be me being um, a, a guy that's into indoctrination or this is just what I believe. And, and I think it's important that we do have these open conversations. Yeah. That's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So when you worked with all these college students for what, 16 years, how long yeah. were you there? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. Did you see over 16 years a slow decline in that, or or, or was or what, what? What was your thoughts? Now you now you worked with a lot of really intelligent college that's kids. Right. I was with the cream of the crop. You know, Texas Academy of Mathematics and Science, brightest kids in Texas, go off to Harvard, Stanford, MIT, and the like. So it was a joy to engage them. In fact, mm. I would host these forums I called Dessert and Discourse. I would do those in my home with older people calling it drink and think, but I couldn't <laughs> bring out the bourbon or the wine to yeah. the younger kids. But no, they were a joy to discuss. And what you saw with them was just such great potential in terms of their acumen and their intellect. Uh, but even the smartest scientific minds doesn't mean that they're well-read or well-thought-out on important issues of, of the world yeah. or the great ideas. Uh, and so for them, again, there would be a lot of arrogance. There's a lot in colleges, and I saw it all the time. I taught in college. I taught in high school. There's a lot of people really love their opinions. And so and you saw it a lot in places like philosophy classes, political science classes. So, yeah, people love their opinions and love to share their opinions. And I almost felt like, oh, I'm really digging in and getting really deep as I'm having this conversation where I'm just airing my opinion. So I think you're right. I just think there hasn't been a lot of people at an educational level challenging people like what you were describing this conversation with this guy who came back from Canada. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're kind of like the gadfly. <laughs> it's what an educator ought to be. Yeah. You know, and, and you, you unfortunately, and I don't know why that's the case, but uh, you don't see that. And maybe it's because we've got a, a bunch of college professors who think one way and they're just as in deep with that sort of way of thinking as well. Yeah, I think, th I think that's right. Well, let's kind of, you know, move the discussion along. I mean, obviously, I think everybody, I think everybody, we could say, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, I think they would agree with the statement that a society that allows all to flourish is the good society. Absolutely. I, I think that that's fairly safe to say that's today. Right. Now, what flourishing means, that may be where the debate occurs. With what's happening now with this hyper-individualism and kind of not having the, the, the moral fabric that tethers us to kind of a common good like we used to, what do you see as the prescription moving forward kind of in the 21st century and what we're facing right now? What do you see as the road ahead? How do you, how do, what do we need to begin doing better? Yeah, I, I, I will go back to education uh, as this. If you think about the 20th century when Mortimer Adler came along, uh, and had this vision of saying, hey, I think the, every man, every woman 
um, would benefit and actually would contribute better to being a good citizen of society to the extent that they're well-versed in the great books of Western world. Mm. Uh, and he created a whole series. In fact, I think I see a book sitting over there uh, <laughs> along those lines. Yeah. Um, and he had this vision. I think, and personally, I'd like to be part of this conversation moving forward with you and others, but what does that look like in 2020? Uh, and moving on. Are we too far gone from that? Do we look at those old books and old people who wrote those things as irrelevant? Or do we see those things as the opportunity to get us knocked out of our sense of the here and now, which is what education does, right? It brings you to this level of uh, seeing the world from a different vantage point because you're seeing it through the lens of these enduring questions that have always come about through the history of literature and, and, and history. That question of what is justice, that's one of the most enduring questions. And to the extent that that's not talked about on a regular basis or even thought about, or even I would know who to point to in terms of who we should read about that uh, is problematic. So the ideal person in me would like to think there's a possibility of a renaissance of that, where maybe we wouldn't have a shared uh, uh, all religion like we maybe used to. Yep. Even then it was still a bit diverse, but... Um, maybe we can have this shared value around what are the great questions and where are the great people who talked about that over time? Yeah, I think that's, I think, and that's a multi, that's a multi-year, multi-decade. It's a multi-generation. Multi-gen, right. It is amazing what you can do in one generation if everybody got on board, yeah. you know, the, how quickly you can change the tide of things. But the, the key is how do you do that? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the other issues as I've thought about it is uh, I've told you about this book by Edwin Friedman that I've loved. And he talks about this idea of kind of emotional regression, and it's one of the hallmarks of a failing society. It's one of the hallmarks of a failing individual, right? An individual who's emotionally regressed moves towards immaturity. So they become easily offended. They become easily reactive to things, as opposed to sober-minded, mm -hmm. as opposed to having calm and poise as they think and consider and ask questions. And that is, I think, one of the real hallmarks of, of this. Of, 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 it's actually a pathology, I think, of our society today is this reactivity that occurs and people act before asking, right? They act before thinking. And, and then when they, when they take that on, then they move into this, what he calls this herd instinct, that now I'm trying to find my group and my tribe. And now all of a sudden you begin to have this reactivity begin to be uh, magnified in, in groups. Now you have groupthink, right? And you've seen that, haven't yeah. you? Absolutely. Even at the local level. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and, and how dangerous is that when you begin to combine those two features of regression? Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah, because now there's no real room for real conversation of stopping and doing the, the famous Stephen Covey, seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. Mm -hmm. I mean, that doesn't even cross a person's mind right. to be able to do that. Yep. So for whatever reason, it's a, you said it earlier, we, we love our own opinions, but we don't love the opinions of others. And, and somehow that's got to change. Yeah. And, and frankly, I'm at a loss. I mean, other than what you're talking about, education. I think there's education. I think there's another side of the coin, and that is, uh, you know, Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, who wrote Leviathan and other political philosophy works, he really focused in on the power of what do you honor as a society in terms of driving people towards the type of behavior that you'd like to see. He was concerned with these aristocratic youth. How do you get them uh, to value the things of, that are good for the body politic, right? How do you, how do you uh, drive 
a young, ambitious person towards uh, honor, courage, you know, sacrifice uh, for others. And he said, you do that through how you place your honors mm. in society. And so if you think about how we as adults or we as politicians or we as parents, what are we honoring and raising up as the virtuous way of living in society? When I see a kid you know, pop off in an emotional way around the subject, in a lot of ways, they're getting cheerleaded by a lot of people in society. Way to go. You took a stand. Way to go. So we really value this sense of get really emotional, get out there, and that's what we honor. And yeah. so as a result, a young person looking at that thinks, well, that's how you make a difference. Yeah. And so it probably even starts with parenthood. Mm. <laughs> how are you raising your kids around these sorts of shared values and, and what it means to be a citizen and what it means to be uh, stable <laughs> in a society? Uh, it's got an education tie, but it's also got to be modeled by our politicians, which frankly is not today uh, across both sides of the aisle. In terms no doubt about of it. No what, about what are they valuing? And what are we looking at? And so I worry a lot. I, I used to in the earlier days, I guess, with my kids. I've got a 12-year-old all the way down to a 6-year-old. I've had varying times of being able to be proud about what they're looking at on a news story and watching TV. Yeah. It's difficult today. How do I talk to them about the state of politics? Yeah, no doubt about it. unfortunate. You know, I had uh, lunch with a friend of mine about two, three weeks ago, and we were just you know, having a meal talking about current events. There was a lot of protesting going on here in Denton at the time. And he was just sharing with me just, you know, kind of his um, frustrations with, with it from his perspective. And so I asked him, um, and he's a dear friend of mine, and I asked him, I said, hey, do me a favor, make the argument for me. What is their argument? You know, I understand your frustrations, but if, give me their argument. And he went, well, and he went for about maybe 15 seconds, and then he stopped, and then he went back to his frustration with it. And I said, do you think there's a problem that the best you could do is 15 seconds of making the argument of the other side, even if you disagree with it, that that's as far as you were able to go with the argument? And he said, well, what do you think the argument would be? And so I, I began to make the argument. It's not, and listen, I've got a lot to learn, but I, I've thought a lot about it, and I made the argument, and I took several minutes to explain to him, this is the argument. And he goes, well, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. I said, well, so how would you work through that? How would you navigate? That's what we're facing today. Yeah. And he goes, you know, that's a really good question. And it was amazing how just in just a few minutes of challenging even your own friends, you don't have to go and get contentious with people you disagree with. You can right. go to the people that you know, your children, your family, your friends, and you can be the gadfly to them. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. true? Yeah, that's right. And say, hey, tell me why you think that. And what's the position of the other person? And begin creating slowly this, this desire to appreciate the perspectives of other, uh, uh, both sides. Yeah, that's a, that's a really beautiful example and something that is clearly lacking. If you think about it, we both studied Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas at a PhD level in philosophy. Uh, you know, how he approached the great questions was to pose the question and then spend pages talking about the objections to what's ultimately his opinion. In other words, he realized, Aquinas, if I'm going to be able to show where Aristotle was wrong in these things, I'm going to be the best Aristotelian scholar of my day. That's the only way I can have any standing to be able to uh, go beyond him. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's necessary. I mean, if you think about some of the biggest political problems facing our society, uh, they're, they're problems. And in any other situation, you would think we've got the most 
genius folks in our country that could come together and tackle this thing. If we could set aside our ideological sides and come together through shared understanding, yeah. there's got to be another approach to how we're tackling these things. I think that when you can make the case for the other, I think it allows you to appreciate at least some yep. aspect of where they're coming from. That's got to be a part of the answer, yep. doesn't it? Yeah. And, and we're not teaching that. We're not teaching people, make the case, tell me, not why do you believe what you believe, but why do they believe what they believe? And really force people to have to get into the mindset of that. I remember when I would read Thomas and, I, and he would start off with making, you know, it has been said or whatever, right? right. And, and, and what does he say? And, and in response, I right. reply that. Right. I remember I would read sometimes what he would write and I'd say, yeah, how's he going to overcome that? Right, right. You know, and then he oftentimes would. Yep. And, but he knew the argument so well that you could tell he deeply appreciated yep. the, you know, these other thinkers. Yep. And that is really lacking in our educational system today. Yes. Isn't it? And at the heart, it's just empathy. Empathy towards an argument yeah. and empathy towards another human being who has that argument. Yeah. I used to run these debates at UNT back in the day and I would practice that the same thing. Everyone would get riled up, they're on their sides, you could tell. And then all of a sudden towards the end, I'd go out and ask questions to the audience to get their thoughts. And I'd kind of pepper them with things that I knew were easy questions. Then I'd get someone, I'd say, hey, who, who is against abortion, if that's the topic? And they'd raise their hand, and then I'd go to them and I'd say, what was the best argument you heard from the other guy? There you go. And same sort of response. I mean, just, there wasn't any there good wasn't argument. Any, right? <laughs> so that's problematic. It's that so quickly dismissive. They didn't make any good arguments. It was stupid, yeah. right? And, they, and, they, and that's what they do, and the reality is, they just didn't listen right? because you get in your own little echo chamber right? and while the other person's talking, what are you doing? You're already thinking about what you want to say next. Right. right. No one really appreciates the spirit of dialogue. Right. It's right? so one thing, actually, Stacy, my wife, Stacy, you know, we're our next podcast, we're going to really be doing a, the art of being a great conversationalist. That's mm -hmm. going to be our next topic. You are a great conversationalist. Well, I appreciate so that. Good. Well, as are you, but you know, when you meet the person that is, there's something really refreshing about it mm -hmm. because it opens up kind of new avenues of thought and people feel appreciated. Mm -hmm. And I think that is another aspect of the good society is the ability to truly engage uh, in a way that you really are curious mm -hmm. about the other person. And you said a word a minute ago that I think is exactly right, Kevin. It is, um, there's an empathy right? The good society is an empathetic society. Mm -hmm. And when you begin to have a decline in empathy, you begin to have a rise in kind of this egocentric, selfish, motivated deal, and it creates nothing but division. And those, are, I think, are the elements that an excellent society has to reinforce. And we as individuals have a responsibility to challenge the people around us to begin thinking more openly like that. Mm -hmm. well, don't you agree? I agree, 100%. Yeah, and I think if we can begin doing that, again, it's probably a, a multi-generational thing. I mean, movements take time, but I think it can, it can begin making a difference, at least within your own little group of people that, that, you're, that you're dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah, so kind of last couple of minutes and we'll, we'll be kind of you know, winding this down a little bit. Um, Let's take a particular issue and just kind of tease it out a little bit. Not that there's an answer, yeah. Um, but look, you know, on our square here, there's been a a monument that's been sitting there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe I actually never read the inscription, uh, 
What was it? A, just a, a Confederate monument? To our Confederate soldiers. To our Confederate soldiers. Yeah. And uh, I'm not even sure how long it's been. It's been there Nin for as long as I know. 1921. Before you were alive. Yeah, so 100, 100 years yeah. it's been there. Yeah. And at 2.30 in the morning last night, it was taken down. Um, Lawfully. What's that? Lawfully. It's Lawfully, important to point yeah, out. yeah, not torn down. <laughs> taken down lawfully, right? The city council, the mayor approved it. It was taken down and will probably be put in some place in the city where people can still go and observe it and see its historical significance. Um, if you were to navigate that conversation with two people who have strong opinions on both of them, I'm curious because I think you're really good at this. You've spent a, your lifetime doing this. How would you navigate that conversation? Yeah. You know, I think I'd, I'd start the conversation with asking both of them to describe to me, what does that monument up there mean to you? Mm. What does it symbolize to you? What do you like about it? What do you, don't you like about it? Uh, and hopefully they'd get a chance to hear from one another, which is important. You know, at the end of the day, a monument is symbolic, which is, I think, what's caused all the ruckus uh, of this, because symbolism can take its own sort of meaning from many different people as they're doing it. But I think to get folks talking to one another about this uh, and then um, uh, helping them understand. Yeah. The idea of a symbol having objective meaning is patently false, right? A symbol by its very nature right. is subjective to the individual and what they draw from it. And that's the rub. So I think what you're saying is great. Making sure both people are clear on what their thoughts are of that particular symbol. Right. Or maybe even starting and saying, hey, I'd like for each of you to tell each other what you think that monument means to the other. Let's see how well you really understand what it means. Don't just let them tell you. I want you to tell them. Right. That would be interesting. Yeah, it would be. To see how well, how long can you go Yeah. Uh, explaining to the other what the other person's feelings and opinion are about that monument. Yeah, and I think at some point, I think it goes back to the empathy question. I mean, at some point, you'd have to say, what's the purpose of our town square, even symbolically? Mm, yeah. What does that represent for us in the life of the city? And so what place does that have for things like this or doesn't have for things like this? And what does that mean? And I think it's fine for us as a culture to say you evolve on certain questions. I know when I was on city council back in the day, I would talk, I represented Southeast Denton, the historically black community in town, a lot of old timers. And I asked many of them, folks who had been part of civil rights movements here in the town, got streets paved in Southeast Denton, got schools integrated. I mean, we're stalwart uh, uh, fighters for justice. And there was a real ambivalence from a lot of them in terms of this statue really? at the time. It was like, did that surprise you? It did surprise me. In fact, most of, at that time, most of the concerns I heard, most of it were from young white people. Mm. Uh, and so I, I spent time talking with folks about it. And there's a lot of, well, I grew up with that. It's never really bothered me. I think that's evolved over time. Yeah. And I even think for some of those folks I've seen come out and, and talk about what that means today. So yeah. I, I, these are really important conversations to have. And that's why it, it grieves me that they become these political right. ping pong matches instead of this is a great opportunity to talk yeah. about a really important thing for our city i'm sure for some of those old timers they're thinking uh that statue is the least of my problems i think that's exactly right because right. you want to worry they about took the real brunt yes. of getting the equality that they so desperately not just desired but deserved as human beings 
And that statue was very low on their list of priorities. And currently, here's a list of 10 other things I would suggest we'd work on yeah. prior to the statue. That's right. right. Whereas for other people who, um, who really make that statue everything, um, that could simply be, for them, such a powerful symbol of a systemic oppression that just the symbol of it alone is enough to influence and inform people in terms of certain, what's the word today, hierarchies today that exist, that they say, you know what, just take it down. Right. Because it's an unnecessary influence in the minds and hearts of people. And you've got to appreciate that argument. Absolutely. Right? Be no different. And I think this is a legitimate argument. It's no different than the person who says, you know, if they were Jewish and and their, you know, children had to walk past, you know, uh, an Adolf Hitler statue, right? To them, that would be offensive. That that's still up, even for historical relevance. Right. So you've got to, you have to at least appreciate the argument, whether you agree with it or not. You've got to be able to stop and have enough empathy to say, you know what? I can see why you would feel that way. Right. I don't because I see it simply as historical relevance, not any more than that. And so now the dialogue can begin, and maybe some sense of compromise. And if you don't occur. get your way, it's less of this massive problem for you. Right. Because it's at least you were heard. Yeah. At least you were heard. Yeah. And there's a, a maybe an underpinning value that we both believe in, and that is that even if we disagree, okay, we live in a society that comes down to a vote. And it has a process upon it has a which process. we decide That's these right. things. Yeah. So if I want to win my argument, I need to convince more people to vote the way I would like to, for them to vote. And, and and we both believe that. So yeah. it's 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 civil. Yeah. Right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't require upheaval and massive disruption. Right, it can be done through the process that we've already got built into the system. It's based on persuasion, argument, reason, gathering, empathy, uh, yeah, yeah, compassion, all those things. Yeah. Well, this is Kevin. This is why I wanted you, man. I wanted you here. I just think our conversations are always so uplifting to me. Uh, they really encourage me. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing more of this at some point together. Great. Whether it's through the podcast or maybe doing something outside of this, creating forums for conversation to help people think. Because in my opinion, this truly is, um, it, it is the Arete way. I mean, it is the way of excellence, mm-hmm. you know? And that's what it means, I think, to be a more excellent citizen, is to be somebody who seeks the flourishing of all people, right? To create the opportunity for that to occur. And I know you agree with that. Absolutely. And whatever the particulars look like, that's where persuasion and all these other things come in. But we all should desire that flourishing for everybody because that's what excellent societies and excellent people do. Well, thanks for being here, buddy. I look forward to doing this again. My pleasure. All right, buddy.